So we are going to pick up in uh, Matthew 15, verse 21, right where Dave left off last week. Um, I'm going to tell you right up front, this was not an easy message to prepare because I had to do a whole lot of reading to understand why in this passage, try to figure out what was happening. Um, There are some principles in this passage that are really, really, really straightforward, and there are others that are kind of like, well, that's weird. So um, this passage is not one that makes us feel comfortable. It's one that we have to go through the entire passage to get to the point where we understand why it's included. Um, it, it, you might be able just to take it on faith and, and say that, well, this is, this is a good thing, um, but as I read it, there are some points that make me uncomfortable. And you know, God is really good at making us uncomfortable, right? Because if we're comfortable all the time, we'll never change. So sometimes he uses that which makes us uncomfortable in order to change us into who he wants us to be. So I'm going to ask you all to stand for our scripture today. And we are going to be in chapter 15, starting verse 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this passage today, help me to faithfully explain what is going on. Help us to understand why you have included this in the gospel, why this this particular message is here for us today. Help us to understand what we need to in order to grow to be more Christ-like. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen. So please have a seat. So, the first thing we are told is that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are not part of the territory of Israel at this point in time. If Kira can figure out how to get the slide up on the screen for me. Turn off easy worship. Just close it. Is the slide on your screen? Let me see if I can help her. Sometimes the best tool you can have when studying Scripture is a map. And if y'all don't have a map, that's not going to help.
And there's a map. So, in the... Let me get my laser pointer out here. Down in the lower right-hand side, you see the Sea of Galilee, big blue blob... There's a pointer on this thing. I have to find it. There we go. There's your Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was recorded in the passage that Dave covered as being in Gennesaret, right there. So Matthew tells us that he moved from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Those two cities were up here on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They are... Gentile cities, um, and they're about 50 miles away. So the reason that it's important to have a map is to get a sense of the time it takes for things to happen. Matthew isn't really concerned about timing in his gospel. We've already said that. And here he says, Then Jesus went from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon, 50 miles on foot, cross-country probably four or five days worth of travel. This wasn't like Jesus packed up and went to the next town over. He didn't, he didn't walk from Biloxi to Gulfport. Okay? This was a trip. This was a, a, a trek that took a long time. The other thing about this, this little yellow area right here is the area of Galilee. This, in the orange, is not. It's not Jewish territory at all. It's Gentile territory. This is the only time Jesus is recorded as going to Gentile territory. Even when he cuts through Samaria, that's not Gentile. The Samarians are particularly despised because they are half-breed Jew and Gentile but they are not considered to be Gentiles. They're Samaritans. That's a whole different category. Gentiles are those who have no Jewish heritage whatsoever. So Jesus goes there. We don't know why. Matthew doesn't tell us. This also shows up in Mark chapter 7. We don't know why. It's possible that Jesus went for no other reason than to get away for a while, because we saw in chapter 14, how many times did Jesus try to get away for a while, and the crowd kept following him. It could be that's why he went. We just don't know. Scripture does not tell us. You can go back to easy worship now, Kira. Um, In Mark's account, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, Mark tells us, that once Jesus arrived there, he went into a house, but he didn't want anyone to know he was there. So that lends itself to the idea that he went in order to get some time out of the ministry. Now, I am nowhere close in my life to the ministry that Jesus has. None. But I can tell you, there are times when a minister needs to be 
disengaged from the ministry. When you pour your life into the lives of other people, there are burdens, there are cares, there are struggles, there are troubles that you carry that aren't your own. There are times you need to be able to go somewhere on your own to unload that burden. So I'm, I'm leaning towards that's probably why he went there, at least on the surface. We talked about it this morning in Sunday school. Jesus said over and over again that he did nothing that was outside of the Father's will. He only did what was the Father's will for him to do. So that means that God had it in his plan for Jesus to go here. Now, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee to go to a quiet place to pray, and what happens? People show up. He crosses back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and what happens? People show up. Even this morning, we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went alone to pray, and what happened? A mob showed up to arrest him. Everywhere Jesus goes, people know he's there. The same thing happens here in the region of Tyre. A woman comes to Jesus. Now, stop there. That's kind of weird. It's not weird in Jesus' frame of reference because we know that he stopped in the village of Sychar and the woman at the well spoke to him. We know that when he was in Galilee, the woman uh, approached him knowing that if she touched the hem of his robe that she would be healed of her, her issue of blood. And it's not unusual that a woman would feel safe approaching Jesus, but it's unusual culturally for a woman to do that. Because that's not how things work. It wasn't proper. It wasn't polite society. But then Matthew says something about this woman. Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. Mark uses a different word. Mark uses the word for a Phoenician woman. Looking again at that map, Phoenicia was a nation not nearly as strong as the Assyrians or the Babylonians. It was a small civilization that rose up right there on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea that we looked at that was predominantly made up of people of Canaanite descent. So that's why Matthew calls her a Canaanite. How did the Jews look upon the Canaanites? Yeah, what were they supposed to do to the Canaanites when they came into the promised land? <laughs> they were supposed to eradicate them, right? They were either to drive them out or execute them. Not to mingle with them. And this Phoenician woman, this Canaanite woman, seeks Jesus out. And if that's not remarkable enough, look at what she says. Now, it's obvious that Jesus' reputation as a healer has spread. Now, we know that Herod knew who Jesus was, or at least who he thought Jesus was, and what Jesus was doing. And, and we know by the time Jesus moves back down into Jerusalem that people know what he's been doing. So it's not just the Jews that know about Jesus, because she comes and she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That O Lord may not be as significant as you think it is. 
the Greek word that gets translated as Lord is one of those words that you have to pay particular attention to the rest of the sentence. It is the same word that is used for sir. So if I call you sir, right, that's the same word as Lord. This was a very uh, politically charged society. It was a very class-structured society. So if you spoke to one of your betters, you would call him Lord, kind of like in the the medieval times where you have the, the serfs and the knights and the, the, the wealthy class. You would refer to everybody as Lord if you were in a lower class than them. So it's not necessarily here that she is recognizing him as Christ, as Messiah. She's not Jewish. She's a Canaanite. She wouldn't recognize him as Messiah. Except, she doesn't just say, have mercy on me, O Lord. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. That's a very significant phrase. This is a messianic phrase. The Jews had the prophecy that the coming king would be of the line of David, a son of David. The Gentiles didn't have that. And yet she identified him with this messianic title. It shows us something about her understanding of who Jesus is. She knows who Jesus is. Then she goes on to tell him why she's asking for help. She says her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, in a lot of other situations where we encounter somebody who's being oppressed by a demon we are told what their particular affliction was uh, the men in the area of the uh, garrisons or gadarenes whichever gospel you read uh, with legion right they demonstrated unusual strength they could not be chained they could not be contained they would cut themselves with rocks and and gnash their teeth and and they were living among the tombs because they couldn't be with civilized people we know in other cases the person was blind who had a demon. There was a person who couldn't speak who had a demon. In this case, she doesn't say what the symptoms are. She just says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, if we look at all those other cases where Jesus was going around and somebody came up who was demon oppressed, what did Jesus do? He would drive the demon out, he would speak to the person, he would heal the person, whatever. And this is why this passage is so hard. This is why I had to do so much digging in this passage. Because look at what Jesus did. Nothing. Verse 23, he did not answer her a word. He ignored her. Here is a woman pleading for help for her daughter, and Jesus did what my brain says is the most un-Jesus-like thing to do. He ignored her. Now, if you stop right there, that almost invalidates all of Jesus' ministry. Everything about the gospel being for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, right out the window, because Jesus didn't even tell her to go away. He ignored her. We aren't told why. We just know that he didn't answer. 
However, the woman wasn't pushed away. She carried on pleading with Jesus and the disciples, so much so that the disciples, probably Peter, right? (laughs) They come to Jesus and say, send her away because she's crying out after us. Get rid of her, Jesus. She's driving us out of our minds. She's going to let everybody know that you're here. She's making a ruckus. Do something. Now, there's a possibility, and I will not exclude this possibility. Uh, I'm probably a little bit more cynical than I should be. There is a possibility that it is implied in their request that what they want Jesus to do is to heal the daughter and send the woman away. Okay? That's possible. It doesn't read that way. And seeing what we have seen about the disciples, knowing what we know about the disciples at this point in Jesus' ministry, seeing how Matthew refers to her as a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, and they are all Jews, I really don't think they were saying, Jesus, would you heal her daughter and get her to shut up? I think what they were saying was, hey, rabbi, leader, she's going to draw attention to you that you don't want drawn. Get rid of her. Demand that she leave. Now, I could be wrong. I hope that I am. Because of the way Jesus responded, I might be. But the language, both in the English and in the Greek, does not read that way. What gives me the idea that I could be is that Jesus answered the disciples and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus wouldn't say, That, if they were just asking him to get rid of her. Because he answered them. But now if you read that answer, this is another one of those almost un-Jesus-like answers. Because what Jesus said was, it's not my job. This isn't my mission. This isn't what I'm supposed to do. Wait a minute. How does that square with who Jesus has demonstrated himself to be? That doesn't fit. There's got to be more going on here. There's got to be more for us to see in this account. So we keep going. Verse 25. She came and knelt before him. And begged him, Lord, help me. Now, up to this point, she has been ignored. Jesus didn't say anything to her. She's probably been berated by the disciples because they were bothered enough that they came to Jesus and told him to get rid of her. Whether that means by healing her daughter or just by getting rid of her, I don't know. Right? And if she heard Jesus' response to the disciples... 
then at least in kind of a sideways fashion, she has already been told that Jesus isn't there to heal her daughter. But she persisted. She came and she threw herself at his mercy. She persisted with the one phrase that every one of us who claims the name of Christ has cried out at least one time in our life. Lord, help me. That's our prayer when we realize that we can't do enough good works to save ourselves. When you are brought to the point by the Holy Spirit where you know that there is nothing you can do to unstain yourself, the only thing you can cry out is, Lord, help me. Because we can't do it. That is the cry that we utter when we have come to the end of ourselves. Friday evening, this week, I said it during Sunday school, this was one of the hardest weeks I have had in the last year, just because of things piling up at work. I felt like somebody who was treading water facing a tidal wave. And at the end of myself, the only thing I could cry out was, Lord, help me. Now, I added a couple other words. Help me to not kill them. Because I was seriously on the verge of a violent break with people coming into my office and demanding things of me. This is the phrase that we use when we are hurting beyond our capability to carry on. When we see nothing before us but destruction. When we cannot see what we're going to do to make it. There's no way we're going to make it another step. Lord, help me. My buddy Danny tells a story. He was driving a Chevette down the highway. I don't know why you would do that in the first place. Because that's already risky. And he had a malfunction of some variety and lost control and wrecked the car. And he was talking about prayer. And he said that he did not, in the midst of his wreck, bow his head and and fold his hands and, and begin with, Lord, thank you for creating so much beauty around me and so on and so forth. And by the way, if you have an opportunity to please get me out of this mess that I find myself in, that would be awesome. But he uttered a very profound prayer. And it was, Lord, help me. That is the most powerful prayer we have because it recognizes what we don't have and that's the power to help ourselves. And that's what this woman comes with when she comes to Jesus. It was her only plea. Now, if ignoring her wasn't enough (laughs) to to be on the scale of the un-Jesus-like things to do, If telling the disciples that it wasn't his job wasn't enough, Jesus puts the the, the icing on the un-Jesus-like cake when he responds to her plea. Now here is a woman in utter humility, kneeling. She's probably laying on the ground before him. Lord, help me. And Jesus says, 
It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here's Peter. Because that's how you respond when Jesus says something like that. First, the overall image that Jesus is using is the picture of a family sitting at a dinner table, right? Children at the table. And then you have, you don't take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. What do we know about dogs in Jewish culture? Dogs were unclean animals. Okay? They were unclean animals. They were not popular as pets like they are in the United States. However, there were dogs that were kept as pets. In fact, the Greek word that is used and translated as dogs here, the word kynarion, is not the word that is used for the feral dogs that would roam the streets, the strays. It's the word that's used for domesticated small dogs that would be kept as pets. So more along the lines of your Pekingese and your Shih Tzus and your Lhasa Apsos and uh, your small family dogs. So Jesus, at least he's not calling her a feral dog roaming the street waiting to attack people in a pack. But the fact of the matter is he still calls her a dog. The family pet. This is, Jesus said this. He ignored her. He said, it's not my job to do this. And then he tells her flat out that you are of equal or lesser value than the dogs laying on the floor under the table. Why was this a hard passage for me to preach on this morning? That doesn't sound like Jesus. It doesn't fit. And Jesus says it would be wrong to take bread off the plate of one of the kids sitting at the table and give it to the dog. Now at least I understand that. I own dogs. I grew up with dogs. Dogs don't get the food that goes in the kid's plate until after the kid is done with it. Then you put the plate on the floor, and the dog gets the scraps. Now, at this point, I have to be honest. As I was reading my commentary on the book of Matthew, and I'm reading through this, and I'm trying to, trying to digest what's going on as I'm reading this verse by verse, as I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, the commentator says, I have to commend the woman. She's been ignored. She's been told by Jesus, it's not my job to heal your daughter. And now she's been called a dog. Were I in her shoes? I don't know if I would have been this graceful. I could see her in all her humanity. This is a woman who is already frustrated, who is at the end of her rope, her daughter, her child whom she loves, 
is suffering under the weight of demonic oppression with some illness, some kind of manifestation. And she has begged and she has pleaded and she has begged more. And then to have the guy who is supposed to be the healer call you a dog. Look, I get frustrated with the Walmart checker if they take too much of an attitude when they tell me how much the stuff on the belt is going to cost. If I were in her shoes, knowing Bill's temperament, I think I would have stopped kneeling and I would have stood and probably popped Jesus in the jaw. That's a human thing to do. But she doesn't. Humanly speaking, it would have been perfectly understandable if she had burst into a tirade and let Jesus have it. But she didn't. In fact, she showed a remarkable sense of true self-identity. See, she knew that she was unworthy of mercy. She was unworthy of any favor on Jesus' part. We live in a world of entitlement. We do. We all do. If you don't believe that you do, when was the last time you complained about how much a prescription cost? Or gas? Or your electric bill? Why do you complain about those things? Because you think you should be able to get them for less. Because I'm entitled to it for less. Why? See, we live in a world of entitlement. She knew that God didn't owe her anything. She knew that she had no grounds to demand her daughter be healed. She recognized her position before God. She was a beggar. And her response, I really wish the church would spend more time on this passage. As painful as it has been for me to go through it, as hard as it was for me to prepare for this morning, this response in verse 27, the church could spend the rest of our existence understanding. And it would do us some good. Because she doesn't explode. She doesn't lose her temper. She doesn't demand. Instead, she says, and this is Bill's paraphrase, you're right. It would be wrong to take food off of the table and give it to the family pet. But that family pet is allowed to eat the crumbs that fall off the table that nobody wants. You're right. I am worth less than a dog in God's economy. I am begging you from a position of abject poverty. I have nothing. No standing. I'm not of the house of Israel. I am not a man. I'm not a landowner. I'm not wealthy. I have nothing to give but I'm asking for a crumb. 
a crumb, a scrap that would be ignored, unnoticed, unmissed. If only we would wrap our heads around that. When we come before God, that's where we start. When you think, when you think, God, that's unfair. Why do I have to go through, bleh, fill in the blank. Why did I get fired? Why can't I find employment? Why can't everything just work out for once? What you're doing is you're questioning what God has provided. You're coming from a point of obligation. You're coming from a point of approaching God saying, I deserve an easier time of it. I've struggled enough. Let me ask you, which, is a, which of us has struggled enough to make up for our sin? None. And here this woman says, I'm begging. I have nothing to offer. Now, Jesus says, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. We don't hear anything else about this woman or her daughter. In fact, verse 29, Matthew tells us Jesus went from there back to Galilee. We don't know why Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon. I know why God had him do it. Because we need to hear that message. We need to, we need to be faced with the Jesus who doesn't respond to our whim. We need to be faced with the Jesus who doesn't just turn and automatically deliver us from whatever we're going through. We need to be faced with the idea that Jesus is not some celestial vending machine that we can approach with the right prayers and the right words, and all of a sudden everything goes great. We need to understand that we are the household pet. And we need to be content with a crumb. It would seem to me that Jesus went there because of the faith of the Canaanite woman. Looking backwards at the New Testament, I made mention of this this morning, that the, the disciples have memories of like goldfish. Uh, they make goldfish look like road scholars. They can't remember something from one minute to the next. It's amazing to me that there was so much controversy within the church of the first century when it came to admitting Gentiles into the church. It amazes me that there was so much controversy. You would think that James and John, at least... Now, Peter, it doesn't surprise me, okay? Because he's Peter. But you would think that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder would have remembered the faith 
of the Canaanite woman. If it's possible for a Gentile to have that much faith, isn't it possible for God to have saved them too? But then, as soon as I start pointing fingers at the disciples, I realize that in about 20 minutes here, after we get the doors closed and the lights turned off and the alarm's set, I'm going to hop in the car and I'm going to drive down Pass Road and I'm going to get frustrated because that guy's in my way. Because I deserve to drive at the speed I want to drive. And I'm going to remember nothing about the faith of the Canaanite woman. Because that's not what my flesh wants to hear. That's not the way my person wants to live. I don't want to be a beggar. I want to believe that I'm in control of my fate. However, when I come into contact with God's Word. When I read something like that, I get a little glimpse of how much I need to break away from that sense of entitlement. 